All right. Um, this is going to be a little interesting because I'm trying to run a very cantankerous sound system as well. So bear with me a little bit. <laughs> well, John, John will be here in a few minutes, so, uh, so I'll gladly hand it off to him at that point. Um, open up, if you would, uh, in your Bible to, uh, to Psalm 51. And uh, before we get started, let's just open up in a, in a quick word of prayer. All right, Father, uh, we just thank you for this morning, uh, just for this time to come together and to look in your word. <clears throat> Lord, we, we just thank you again for, for allowing us to come together uh, physically, uh, even in these interesting times in which we, we are living, Father. Uh, we just thank you for the privilege that we have. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would bless the, um, the words which... I speak, uh, Father, we pray that they would be your words, and uh, Lord, I just pray that you would allow me to communicate um, a little of what you have been teaching me, um, and just prepare our hearts for your word, Lord. So in the name of your Son that we pray, All right, so a um, couple of things that I discovered as I was... Um, began to, to prepare for this portion. Um, when when Eric, Eric asked me to, to speak, um, he said that we were, speakers were being uh, uh, recommended to pick a, a portion from the book of Psalms, but that wasn't required. Um, so initially I was, uh, I was thinking about speaking from Romans, which was where I was stuck, um, but I decided to, to try to stick with the program and, and do a psalm. Um, and initially when I picked Psalm 51, um, I wanted to do something I hadn't done before, which is try to cover a, a whole chapter. Um, in the past, I've always just picked a few verses and spoken from those. Um, I discovered that I'm very, very bad at doing that. Um, very bad. Um, so we're not even coming close to covering the entire chapter. Um, if, if we're lucky, we might get to verse 4 or 5. I apologize for that. Um, I don't know how people who do cover large portions of scripture do it. I just, I don't understand it. <laughs> it's beyond me. Fair. Um, second thing, which, which was a good thing, um, is that I really, um, in, in studying this portion and, and trying to study for the whole chapter and failing miserably, I really started to understand for the first time really what my method of Bible study in general um, and my method of preparing a sermon, what that actually is, um, which I've never taken time to think about in the past. Um, and what I realized is that when I come to a portion of Scripture, um, when I come to a portion of Scripture, my, my first question really, and my main question that I, that I want to answer is, what is the passage actually saying? Um, what is it actually saying? Because so often I find that when I come to Scripture, um, especially perhaps having grown up in church and having been exposed to so many different ideas, is that I come to a portion of Scripture already having an idea of what I think it means. Um, and I found that the, the, the study that I was doing in, in the book of Romans, I found that to be tremendously true, is that 
I feel like I was missing the whole point of chapter 9 of Romans because I was so caught up in the issues that I thought Romans chapter 9 was addressing. Um, and so I was missing the entire point. And so in, in, in studying Psalm 51, I realized that my, my real question is, what is this portion of scripture actually saying? And the way that I, I usually go about trying to figure that out is by, by doing word studies, by looking at the words, the Hebrew words, what they mean, and then determining um, you know, what God is trying to communicate, trying to determine what God is trying to communicate through that chapter. Um, the reason I say that is I love that kind of study. Um, I know some people think that that kind of study is a little tedious. Um, I apologize ahead of time if you do think it is tedious. I hope you'll be able to learn something from it anyhow. Um, but again, without, without further ado, let's, let's get into it. I think, uh, why don't we just start, we'll read down to verse 7. Again, we're not going to get there uh, that far. But uh, let's, let's start um, in Psalm 51, reading down to verse 7. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet had, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter snow. So I think most of us are probably um, pretty familiar with the context that um, that Psalm 51 is written in. Um, but it's always good to have a quick refresher. I was going to, to read the whole the whole portion. Um, it's found in Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. Um, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize um, the chapter. Um, so the chapter, the chapter begins by David sending his forces, his military forces, under the command of um, his chief captain, uh, Joab, out to battle. Um, and it's interesting because it starts off by saying that it's the time when kings went out to make war. And yet David, who was the king, sent his men out to do war and chose to stay behind and not execute God's plan, but rather to relax and um, take a year off um, from the activities of, of war. Um, and the result of that was that uh, on a certain day, David got up during the middle of the day, um, got up from off of his couch where he was relaxing and taking it easy, um, and went out and saw a woman washing. And that woman was Bathsheba. And David ended up sending for her. Um, she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was a servant of David. But David sent for her and uh, committed adultery with her. And then 
learned um, a short time later that she was with child. And of course, at that time in Israel, uh, under the law that God had set forth, if someone had committed adultery, they were worthy of the death penalty. They were worthy to be stoned. And in order to attempt to cover up his sin, because from a rightful standpoint, Bathsheba couldn't have been pregnant because her husband was out fighting with David's men. David sent to Joab and told him to send Uriah back. And so Uriah came back and gave a report to David of how the war was going. And David told Uriah to um, go home and relax, and the next day he would, he would uh, depart. But rather than going home and enjoying the relaxation of his home, Dave, Uriah chose to sleep at the, at the, at the door of, uh, of David's house. And when David asked him the next day why he had done that, Uriah's response was a very honorable one. He said, the ark of the Lord and the people are dwelling in tents, and all of your servants are camped in the field doing battle. How can I go home and eat and drink and be with my wife while the rest of Israel is not being able to enjoy that? And so David said, all right, you stay, stay today and tomorrow, and then you can depart. And that night, David again attempted to trick Uriah into doing what he wanted him to um, by making him drunk. But even drunk, Uriah's honor and his commitment to honor the Lord in that situation was strong enough that again, when he went out from, from the meal with David, he slept at the door of David's tent. And so one of the, it's one of the saddest verses is that in the morning, David writes a letter and he puts it in Uriah's hand and tells Uriah to give the letter to Joab. And in the letter, it tells Joab to attack the city, Rabbah, which they're besieging, attack the city, and when the fighting is fierce, to pull the forces back from around Uriah so that Uriah would die. And that's exactly what happened. And in the process of that, other, several other of David's servants were killed, but Uriah was killed. And when the report came back to David, um, Joab expected David to be angry that they had pushed so close to the city where they could be shot at from the walls, but he said, if David gets angry, he told the messenger, if David gets angry, all you have to do is say, Uriah the Hittite is dead, and his anger will, will dissipate. And sure enough, the servant said, the messenger said, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David said, tell Joab, don't, don't let this thing displease you. The sword devours one as, one as well as the next. Make your attack against the city more strong and overthrow it. And the verse that the chapter ends with the statement that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And of course, uh, the, the next chapter begins with uh, Nathan the prophet coming to David, and he tells David a story. He says, David, there are two men. One man was rich, the other man was poor. And the rich man had many flocks and many herds, many sheep. And the other man, the poor man, had one lamb. And that lamb was, was his only possession. He loved that lamb. And he cherished that lamb. That lamb lived with him in his own house. It was all he had. And one day a, a, a stranger came on a journey. 
and he stayed with the rich man. And the rich man, rather than taking one out of all of the abundance that he had, he took that single lamb that that poor man had, and he slaughtered it, and he used it to feed his dens. And Nathan asked David, what should be done to the rich man? What should be the consequence for his action? And David, of course, responded very emphatically, he should be killed. And he should have to repay, I forget what he said, ten times or a hundredfold of what he took away from that man. And Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. You are the man. And this psalm is the outflowing of David's heart. I want you to realize something. Is that in, in uh, chapter 11, right before it says that the Lord was displeased with David's actions, it says that after Bathsheba had finished mourning for her husband, she came to David, became David's wife, and she bore him a son. That happened before Nathan came. So that means nine months of time have elapsed. Nine months have elapsed since David committed this sin. Betcha David thought he was off free and clear. Right? It's been nine months. It's been a long time. No consequence. Got away with it. A couple of weeks ago, um, Eduardo shared with us from Psalm 32, which was another psalm that David wrote after that confrontation with Nathan. It says in verse 3 of Psalm 32, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old. David was one of the most godly kings, a man who had a tremendous relationship with God. One of the most godly kings that the nation of Israel ever had. And he said that after nine months of denying his sin, of covering his sin up, of not admitting it, not getting right with God, his bones were dried up. That was the emotional effect, the physical effect that this had on, that this stress of guilt had on him during that period of nine months. And Psalm 51 is the outflowing of his emotion at the end of that. So let's just start working through this um, verse by verse. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. It's a beautiful verse. And one that initially, again, reading through it initially, um, seems relatively straightforward. Because of your loving kindness, have mercy on me. But one of the beautiful things about uh, about the Hebrew language is that, and, and we all we all know this, we've heard it before. We have one word to mean many many one many ideas in the English language are described with one word, love, one word. Greek, Greek and Hebrew are similar in this way. Greek has six different words that mean love. Hebrew is the same way with mercy. In that. There are many different words that can be translated from Hebrew into English as mercy, but each of those words has a different connotation, and especially in the Hebrew language, a different imagery that goes along with it. Hebrew is a very is a, a, a language that's based on imagery. The word in Hebrew for mercy is hanan, and I apologize. I like to try to pronounce Hebrew correctly, but Hebrew has all of these ha ha 
in it. And I cannot do it. So I apologize. I'm mauling, I, I try, but I maul the pronunciation. The Hebrew, the, the word is Hanan. And Hanan has the sense of stooping. The sense of stooping down. So the image that you can have in your mind for that word Hanan is that of a father stooping down in order to look at his son eye to eye. Coming down. So if you look at this here, David's saying, Have mercy on me, O God. And that word for God there is Elohim, which means the Almighty God, the Supreme God. And it's interesting, when, when we sin, I don't know if this is if this way for you, but sometimes I feel like when I sin, God gets farther away. Right? Because God is He's supreme. He's holy. He's unattainable. And when I sin, my sin creates a very real separation between me and God. And it's a separation that I cannot make up. I cannot go from my position toward God's position. And David here is saying, God, perfect, supreme, almighty God, have mercy on me and come down to my level because I cannot come up to your level. I can't get to where you are. So will you please come down to me and hear my prayer? God, have mercy on me. Come down to me. Have mercy on me, O God. According to thy loving kindness. That word according means in proportion to your loving kindness. And, and it, this is a really fascinating part about this verse. Is that there's three words in this verse. Um, where the Hebrew word is translated most often as mercy. Um, two of them are translated mercy. At least in the King James in English. Um, have mercy on me, O God. Loving kindness is also a Hebrew word that most often it's translated mercy. And tender mercies, obviously, is translated here as mercy. Um, so I mean, you could read this verse, have mercy on, on me, O God, according to thy mercy, which isn't terribly helpful. John, <laughs> all you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Alright, um, so how do these words, um, how do these words complement one another? So, the word um, for loving kindness, I have to look at my notes here, all these words, have, have, they're, because they all can be tr translated to, uh, to mercy, they're very, they're very similar structure. Um, the word for loving kindness is hased. So again, hanan was the first word, hased is the second word. Has said um, is used 241 times throughout Scripture. Of those, of those 241 times, uh, yeah, 241 times, 149 times that word is translated as mercy. However, specifically, the word mercy, the implication of that word when it's used toward God, when it's used to describe God is specifically describing the attribute of God's pity. 
God's pity, which is something that often comes to my mind, at least, when I think of mercy, is pity, right? But that's the, that's the specific nuance of God's mercy that this word refers to. So if you think about it, God, or, or David is saying, God, because you are merciful, because you have pity toward me, as much pity as you have toward me, because of that, come down to my level. And that word, Hanan, that word come down, when, when there's something, when it's used in a causative context, and I apologize, I'm, I'm not a great grammatical grammatician, I was going to say, but I don't think that's the word. Um, but when it's, used, when it's used causatively, when something causes that word to happen, so when the pity of God, his loving kindness, causes, his, um, causes him to have mercy, when it's used in that way, there's an imploring aspect to it. So you can see David coming down to his knees before God and imploring God, God, because you are merciful, because you have loving kindness, because you have pity, come down to my level and hear my prayer. Over the past um, few weeks, uh, Nathaniel has been teething. And that's resulted in a lot of tears. When, when Nathaniel cries, he's crying because he's in pain. Now, if I came up to him and responded to his pain on my level, it wouldn't do Nathaniel a whole lot of good. So I could come up to the side of his crib, and he's sitting there screaming away. And I could say, well, Nathaniel, you know, the reason that your mouth hurts right now is because you're teething. And what teething means is that your teeth are coming in, and they're putting a lot of pressure on your gums, so your gums are sore. But don't worry, it's not going to last very long. And after it goes away, you'll have these really nice teeth, and you'll be able to eat really good food. And it's a very important part of your, of your growth. So don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. And just in case it get, your pain gets to be too much here, I'll put an ice cube in a little bag. You can take the ice cube out and put it on your gums if it hurts. Does that do Nathaniel any good? He has no idea what I said. He has no idea why Dad put this really cold thing on the crib next to him that he keeps bumping into. And when Dad walks away, he is not comforted in the, in the least because I talk to him at my level. And my level right now is a lot higher than his level. See, in order to comfort Nathaniel when he's teething, I have to go down to his level because his tears provoke pity in me. They provoke pity, and I go down to him, and I pick him up because that's the level of communication that Nathaniel understands. And I take those little, I don't know why they're keys. Does anyone know why they're keys? It's the little key ring, and you put it in the, in the freezer, and, and it gets cold, and you stick it in the kid's mouth. I don't know why they're keys, but they're keys. I stick the key in his mouth, and, and it soothes his gum. He understands that. It comforts him because it's on his level. That's what David is asking God to do here. God, have pity on me. Come down to my level and hear my prayer. Second half of this verse. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, 
blot out my transgressions. So let's work, let's work this verse backwards a little bit. There's, there's, there's three, three key words in this verse. Tender mercies. Oh, I guess that's four. But mercies. Blot and transgressions. Okay? So transgressions. What does the word transgression mean? The, the Hebrew word for transgression literally means a revolt. A revolt. An action, an individual action that's taken that can be defined as revolt. And you see that all the way back to the garden, right? God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The action that Adam and Eve took was a revolt against God's command. That was sin. That was a transgression. Blot out my transgression. The word blot... It's, a, it's an interesting word because we, we get the idea of blotting something out, wiping it away. And that's one of the definitions, means to erase or to paint over something. But there's another really interesting aspect of this word, which means to smooth over. And specifically, to smooth with oil. So you think about it, if, if you poured olive oil onto a, onto a frying pan and then touched it while it's cold, you're... The pan is very smooth, right? Or another or another example is when I'm out changing the oil on my lawnmower, and I hope none of you have experienced this. I have. Changing the oil on your lawnmower and you spill some oil. Normally when you step on grass, there's a lot of resistance to it, right? There's friction. Well, once there's oil on that grass, if you step on it, there's suddenly no friction. It's very smooth. And you glide right over it. <laughs> In other words, David is saying here with this word, blot out my transgressions, cover my sin, erase my sin so that it cannot be seen, and so that its effects cannot be felt. If you touch that place, it's as smooth as oil. Blot out my transgressions. Take away the sight and the accompanying result of my sins. So why should God do that? David's asked God to come down and hear his prayer. His prayer is to blot out my transgressions. Why should God do that? Because of the multitude of thy tender mercies. That word tender mercies is described by one word, which is rachan. Rachan means compassion. But again, Hebrew is a visual language. And the image, the, the, the actual specific meaning of that word, rahan, is the womb. And I saw that at first and I was like, what on earth does the womb, a mother's womb, have to do with compassion? It means the womb because it's talking about the compassion, the way that a parent cherishes the unborn child within the womb. In other words, God, David is saying, God, because you care for me the way that a mother cares for the unborn child inside of her, 
because you feel that level of compassion, of protectiveness toward me, take the sight and the effect of my sin, of my revolt against you, away. You know, we have a four-month-old in the back, so Faith and I have been through having a child in the womb very, very recently. Early on in, in the pregnancy, the first couple of months, it was really interesting to me because if I touched Faith's stomach, Faith would, she would literally flinch, physically flinch. Because she had such, if, if anything touched her stomach, if she bumped into something, it, she would flinch because she had such a, a God-given, overwhelming, overwhelming instinct to protect that child. If you are on the jury for a criminal, and that criminal had committed adultery with, with a dear friend of his, and, and, and Uriah wasn't just any servant of David. If you read later in, in the book of 2 Samuel, I think it's chapter 23 or 26, um, Uriah was one of the 37 mighty men of David. He's the last name mentioned on that list. He's a man who most likely would have known David for a very long time. He had done a lot for David. And he probably would have had, he would have been someone that David would have counted as a friend. He was one of the top 37 warriors in David's kingdom. Someone he would have called a friend. And so if, if you were on the jury for a man who had committed, who had cheated on his best friend, who had gone through extraordinary lengths to cover that up, and then had finally resulted in murdering his friend, and you're on the jury, and you're asked, what should be this man's penalty? Is he innocent or is he guilty? I don't think it, it's, it's hard to, to say that this man should not be punished, right? And, and I know that this is going to be hard for us to, to, it's hard for me to work through in my mind because an unborn child cannot do those things. But now, if you can imagine, if you can imagine being on the jury for someone who has done those things, but put the same emotion in your heart as it would for the unborn child in your Yours or your wife's womb. Now try to say, that person deserves death. That person should be killed. That's what David is saying here. Because of the compassion that you have toward me, because of the love which you have toward me, take my revolt away. Have mercy upon me, O God, According to thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Sometimes when I'm reading when I'm reading the Psalms, I have I have a hard time at, at, at times I have a hard time. Um, because sometimes the Psalms can be a little bit repetitive. 
and I tend to glaze over when I go through those portions. And reading through here, I'm like, okay, he's just asked for his transgressions to be blotted out, and now he's going to ask for the same thing over again. But there's some, some really interesting differences between verse 2 and verse 1. So first of all, and this is not a rhetorical question, I want to, I want to know what you guys think of when, when you read this verse. When you read, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, what is the, what is the mental image that you have? Do you, like, I, I imagine when I read this verse, coming in from the garden with my arms muddy up to my elbows and going and washing my hands off. What, what is your mental image? Do you see the Lord washing someone's feet, their arms, taking a shower? No takers? Well, it says thoroughly. Thoroughly. Wash thoroughly. Thoroughly cleanse. Yeah. Okay. You know the word wash, literally? The definition of that word is trample. Trample. There's no other, you look up that word, wash isn't in the definition, it means trample. And specifically, if you want imagery, it means to stamp. That's the whole definition of the word. Now that made no sense to me, because I didn't live at the time of David. But if you... And we don't understand that because our technology has changed so much over the years. But if you had lived all the way up until the last few hundred years, that would make a lot of sense to you. Because washing, washing fat, part of, part of the, the process of producing fabric in ancient times all the way up through um, into the Renaissance involved trampling. Why? It was a process that I was vaguely familiar with called fulling. And it's a rather disgusting process, but it's very, very, very necessary, where fabric, especially wool, would be put into a trough, which would contain some sort of very highly alkaline solution. Um, that solution could occasionally be chalk and water, but in the vast majority of the cases, it was stale human urine. It would be put in that solution, and it would then be trampled, be stomped on for hours. And because it was such a disgusting, smelly job, it was a very high-paying job. You, you could, during the Middle Ages in England, you could stomp on a piece of fabric for eight hours a day and make three times as much as a field laborer, just doing this all day long. Why did they do that? So when, when wool came off of the sheep, the wool would be filthy dirty. And if you've seen sheep coming out of a pasture, they they got mud and briars and all sorts of junk in their wool. That wool would be carded. All the major junk would come out. It would be woven into thread. That thread would be or twisted into thread. That thread would be woven into a piece of fabric. And that fabric would then come to the fuller. Two things were wrong with the fabric. First of all, sheep are extremely greasy, oily animals. And all of that grease and oil would still be in the fabric. So that piece of fabric, we reread all the time that in the scripture that, that their sins will be made white as wool. But that fabric would come to the fuller a dingy yellow color. Dirty, greasy, oily, smelly. And the other problem was that when the fibers were woven together, you could only get them so tight and the fiber, the, the individual threads would remain separate threads 
placed next to other threads. So I watched a video about it, and they held up this woven fabric, and again, it's dirty yellow, and you can see, like, individually where all of the threads are crossing each other. And what they said was that, first of all, this fabric is extremely easy to tear because the threads really aren't supporting one another. So it would rip very easily, and whether it was ripped or cut intentionally, it would then unravel extremely, extremely quickly. So they would give the fabric to the fuller. The fuller would dump it in this bucket of urine and start stamping on it. And the stamping would break, the, the, the alkaline in the urine would actually break down the grease in the thread, in, in the wool, and completely clean all of that grease and oil out of the wool. At the same time, wool is like Velcro. And if you work it and stomp it and compact it over and over and over again, those threads would actually begin to bind to one another. They would become much more close-knit. So at the end, when you hold up this, this piece of fabric, after it's thoroughly rinsed off, <laughs> believe it or not, the urine didn't leave a smell. It smelled clean. It didn't smell like greasy, oily sheep. It was white. It could be dyed any other color, but the, but the original product would be pure white. And if you held it up to the light, those fibers had, would be going from, from clearly separate fibers that you could see in between to a very close-knit, tight weave that was now stronger, more waterproof, and much more effective for the end user. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. You know, cleansing the light, the sin, out of the life of a Christian is usually not similar, in my experience, to the process of taking a comfortable shower in hot water with mild soap. It's a lot more like being trampled on in a smelly, disgusting solution and being compacted and put under stress in order to produce a product that is both clean and more useful for the end user. It says here, wash me thoroughly. Wash me completely. That, that word, thoroughly, um, I've got to find it. Skipped several pages. We're not skipped. One through several pages there. That word, thoroughly, the literal meaning of that word is increasing. Wash me increasingly from my transgressions. And that word for transgressions, I think it's chata'a. It's an interesting word, or hata'a, something like that. Um, that word for, for um, iniquity is the idea of a perpetual sin. Right? The last verse is dealing with a revolt. It's dealing with God, with, with David's specific individual transgression against God. His revolt, his one sin with Bathsheba. Verse 2 is talking about David David saying, okay, verse 1, David saying, okay, God, blot out, remove the sight and the effect of my sin, singular. Verse 2 is David saying, God, wash me, cleanse me increasingly. The nature that I am in. 
Wash me thoroughly, increasingly from my sin. And from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. And that word cleanse literally means to brighten. Which again, in the process of falling, when you're taking a dirty, yellowish garment and turning it pure white makes a lot of sense. You're turning from dingy yellow to bright white. Brighten me from my sin. You know, it's interesting that Oftentimes when I look at my own life, I have a tendency to identify certain areas of weakness that I am currently struggling with. And I look at my life and I say, God, if I could just stop this, this, and this, I would be good. <laughs> I, I, would, I would be such a better Christian, I'd be such a better person. Those are, the, those are the things I need to work. Once, once I'm, I've, I've, I've gotten rid of those things, I've arrived at a destination. David here is saying, God, I have a specific problem. I have, I have a specific sin that I am in need of forgiveness for. But even after that sin is dealt with, I have a sin nature. I have a sin nature that I need to be cleansed increasingly of so that I can be more like you, so that I can be brighter white, so that I can be more useful for what you have called me to be. Do you and I recognize not just the individual sin that we, sins that we commit, but do we recognize our need to constantly be cleansed more and more in order to follow God in what he is calling us to do? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Holy Moses. Hopefully we'll get through verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Again, David had spent, David, a man who is accustomed to a close, intimate relationship with God Almighty. Just spent nine months out of fellowship with God, refusing to admit, refusing to repent from a sin that he had committed, trying to cover up his sin to God. Which is a very futile endeavor. That word acknowledge literally means to know. I know that I have sinned and I sinned and I admit it to you, God. I know. That that one act of revolt separated me from you. And that it needs to be fixed in order for me to have a relationship with you again. I acknowledge my transgressions. That word for transgressions, again, that's the same word as at the end of verse 1. It's the same word, revolt. For I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. The word sin there, that's the same as iniquity in verse 2. Chata'ah. Hata'ah. Again, I can't, I, I'm not going to pronounce the Hebrew. Um, my sin is ever before me. I always struggled with that verse. And thinking, once I admit, once I confess sin to God, it's forgiven. Why does that sin need to be ever before me? Once it's been taken away, once, once Christ's blood is sufficient 
to cleanse my sin, to take my sin away. Why does that sin have to ever be for me? God is, God has, as Corey Batenboom would say, God has dropped it in the deepest part of the ocean and put up a sign that says no fishing allowed. It can't come back. Why is that sin ever before David? He's not talking here about his sin with Bathsheba. He's talking here about his perpetual sin. His, his sin nature is ever before him. He knows that he is in desperate need to be washed clean. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Do we have time for one more verse? <clears throat> the next verse is, is really starting a, a whole different train of thought here. So. I think we'll probably end there. Um, looking through these verses again, it's, it's been it's been really fascinating to me how much I know, I've always appreciated this psalm. A number of years ago, while Faith and I were dating, we memorized this psalm together. Um, have a tendency of skimming over a lot, of missing what God's word is actually trying to say to me. Even of, of wrestling with a, a phrase like, my sin is ever before me, not understanding it, no idea, knowing I didn't understand it, and yet not taking the time to actually figure out what it means. So I guess um, this morning what, I, what I'd like to leave us with is two things. First of all, when we come to God and ask for his forgiveness, first of all, we need to come to God and ask for his forgiveness. Because, as Eduardo shared with us a couple of weeks ago, unconfessed sin will dry out the spiritual life of each and every one of us. It creates a separation, a very, very real separation from God. And when that separation happens, and I'm sure... If you're anything like me, you've experienced this. That separation happens, and it's easier and easier and easier to remain distant from God. To have a, a gap that you become accustomed with, and you become but once we acknowledge, once we know and admit and repent from that sin. We have to realize that there is a washing, a cleansing of our sin nature that God needs to continue to do. And just because we approach and, and deal with a specific sin in our life does not mean that we have arrived at a destination. We have to focus on what is before us as believers. We have to focus on, we have to, to realize that we have a sin nature that is constantly going to try to derail and sideline our relationship with God. God needs to do a work, and again, that work will often result in a lot of pressure on our lives. It's a smelly, unpleasant process to walk through. 
And yet God's goal at the end is not to leave us sitting in a stinky bucket of urine. God's goal is to take us out of that, to clean us of that. So that we can be white as wool, white as clean wool. And more useful for his kingdom. Let's, uh, let's just close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you um, that as we look at, at many times at people who who we look at as spiritual giants like David, that they were men and women, as Paul said, who were tempted with sin like we are. Who have the same weaknesses that we do. And Father, who needed you to come down to their level. Who needed you to have pity. Who needed you to have compassion. Who needed your patience and your long-suffering to go through the process of cleansing, Father. A process of cleansing that is just as unpleasant for the one doing the falling as the one receiving the falling. And Father, above all, we thank you that because you did have pity on us, you did come down to our level. You lived as a man and your compassion, Lord, led you to the cross. Where once and for all, you have blotted out our transgressions and given us this opportunity to come before you as saints, white, clean, in your eyes. Father, help us to become more like your son and to honor you through our actions, Father. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.